Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hello, listeners. This is Chris Connolly with the HarperCollins Library Marketing Team. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by Helene Wecker, a New York Times bestselling author of The Golem and the Genie. Today, we'll be discussing the sequel to The Golem and the Genie titled The Hidden Palace, which goes on sale June 8th. So many librarian fans of The Golem and the Genie, I know they're eagerly anticipating this next book. So we have a ton to talk about. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for joining me today, Helene. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, so I'm just going to give a little background. Uh, so your debut novel was The Golem and the Genie, which won the Mythopoeic Award for Adult Literature, the VCU Cabell Award for First Novel, and the Harold U. Ribolo Prize, and was nominated for a Nebula Award and a World Fantasy Award. You're a Midwest native. You hold a BA in English from Carleton College and an MFA in fiction writing from Columbia University. Your work has appeared in literary journals such as Joyland and Catamaran as well as in the fantasy anthology, The Gin Falls in Love and Other Stories. You currently live in San Francisco Bay Area with your husband and children. That all sound about right? <laughs> that sounds familiar. Yes, I think that's me. <laughs> I think that is you. Well, again, thank you for joining me. There is so much to talk about. I just, I haven't read books that approach both fantasy and historical fiction in the way that these two special novels do. So just to kind of head things off, Helene, could you introduce listeners to The Hidden Palace? And for anyone who's new to the world, could you also introduce the previous book? Absolutely. Um, so The Hidden Palace takes place um, turn, turn of the 20th century Manhattan. Um, and it's the continuing story of Hava, who is a golem, which is a, a, a person in her case, the woman made of clay, and Ahmad, who is a genie, uh, which is a creature of fire um, from Arabic mythology. And the, so the first book, uh, The Golem and the Genie, was, was the story of how these two beings sort of both landed in New York separately by accident and then had to blend in and live human lives with their respective Im immigrant communities. And for Hava, that was the, the Jewish Lower East Side. And for Ahmad, that was what was then Little Syria um, at the southern tip of Manhattan. And a long way, of course, they have to meet each other and they, they learn about each other and they formed an uncertain friendship all while they are both sort of facing the threat of discovery of, of being unmasked as, as other than human. And the Hidden Palace picks up pretty much where that ends off. Our, our two main characters have decided to attempt a relationship together. And most uh, much of this book is about how that relationship evolves and changes and how it plays out against like the larger struggle of their lives and, and living as human instead 
staying hidden um, and, and sort of the, the ultimate immigrant uh, assimilation story to, to some extent. And meanwhile, um, other machinations are happening. Uh, we're introduced, we are reintroduced to uh, a character named Sophia Winston, who was a secondary character in, in the first book, during which he had a, a very brief affair with Ahmad that left her with a mysterious illness where she can never be warm. Um, she's always cold and shivering. And at the the beginning of the Hidden Palace, she is traveling off to uh, the Middle East to see if she can find a cure for herself. Also there in, in the Middle East in the Syrian desert is a genia, which is a female genie. Um, she's been exiled from her own home in the desert. So will those two meet up? It remains to be seen. And then in back in New York, there's a rabbi on the Lower East Side who discovers a trove of mystical books that was left behind, um, sort of a thread left behind from the first book. And he decides to use them to build a golem. And helping him in this process is his daughter, who's a girl named Crindle. And the process does not go according to plan, let's just say that. Uh, but they do end up building this golem whose name is Yasala. So while Hav and Ahmad are, are going through the their day-to-day struggles and attempting to live like ordinary lives with, you know, with some degree of success and some of failure. Um, there are other characters and forces that are sort of gathering around the edge of the story. And when they arrive, it's it's like with their own agendas and preconceptions, which ends up throwing everything sort of into conflict. And it just, and, and the fun begins there. <laughs> and it is fun and it's completely immersive. And the amount of strings, I mean, I don't know how you write if you have like a board with with lines that are connecting different, you know, like <laughs> it's like, like, like the, the, the crazy bulletin board with the <laughs> yes, yes, from, from yeah, no, it's I have tried everything. I don't think I've actually physically done the bulletin board, um, but I have certainly used. I have I've tried every piece of timeline software. I've tried writing it out and and making lines and diagrams and mind maps, and it all eventually falls apart at some point. And I have to just sort of go back to my brain and 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 refigure it out. Well, whatever you're doing, it works because again, I think this is such a complex and vibrant and just living, breathing world that you've created. And I absolutely adored it. So I Thank do want to just, absolutely. <laughs> um, so I want to talk kind of about, you know, your process with these characters in this world. So it's been about eight years since the Golem and the Genie was published and you worked on that for a long time, about seven mm-hmm. years, if I'm correct. Um, so what's your experience been like spending so much time with these characters in this world? And has your relationship changed over that period of time? You know, it's such a good question. And when I when I sit down and think about it, it feels impossible that I've lived with like these characters for the last 15 years of my life. And I, I sort of created this, this shadow world sort of aside my own world that I... I it's sort of like I, I walk through the door to Narnia every morning when I, and then, you know, I come back at night and that's like, that's my job is, is to go over there and write things down and then come back to the real world, which is, you know, sort of crazy making, but also a huge privilege. And at this point, you know, I think you ask how my relationship to the work has changed. And I think having, at this point, a lot of the characters feel like actual people in my life in that, I have to, I have obligations to them and I have to be true to who they are. I spent years writing the first book, pinning down the the main characters, Hava especially. She was much more of a puzzle to me than Ahmad was. He was, you know, he he, he sort of like, um, 
he's he, he's brooding but there's a certain amount of what you see is what you get with him kava she's very internal um very like sort of thinking and wondering and anxious to some degree creature and so it, it took a while for me to really work out who she was and this time the puzzle really wasn't who are these people it, it's it's more like how can i find ways for them to grow and change while also staying true to who they are at heart um because you know a, a book where the main characters don't change and learn something is you know it's not it doesn't feel whole to me so i really wanted them to be different at the end than they were at the beginning but within the parameters of like how a person changes which is you know a very sort of subtle and tricky thing uh to figure out so i had to figure out like which circumstances and which conflicts would would provide that sort of the catalysts for that the, the setup so yeah and then also i mean just having lived so much life in between then and now and and feeling like different parts of the whole process called to me in different ways i i when the first book was published i had a baby girl now she is in third grade and she has a brother who's in first grade and my life looks a lot different than it was then and the world looks a lot different than it was then and and there was a certain amount of you know over the last few years of, of soul searching that i think a lot of writers did where it was like what are we doing with our careers what are what is this thing are we doing are we adding to the world are we making things better and i sort of you know i went through a while where i had to convince myself that telling stories does matter um and that you know reading about people who are not ourselves creates like the capacity for empathy and that's one of the best tools against things like dehumanization and xenophobia and stuff like that so it's been a roller coaster if you can't tell um but i've i'm just incredibly happy to be where i am now yeah and i I can't understate the development of these characters. Again, it's, it's 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 a decent chunk of time that we're following them through, and the changes are sometimes severe and sometimes subtle, but it's always so believable and just affecting. So, two thumbs up. Um, so, <laughs> absolutely. Anyone who's read the Golem and the Gene knows how they they know how effective your writing is it bring to life a place as well not only the characters but we're talking the city itself new york city and in this case sophia who you mentioned she's traveling through the middle east and syria and those passages are incredible as well so i just wanted to talk a little bit about you know obviously you did extensive research for the golem and the genie and so when you're approaching this world again did you have to do a lot i mean was your research process different um your writing process did it develop and change between the two books and did you always plan to return to this story when you were doing so um you know i i sort of i think i did plan to return to the story um and a lot of that was because of the research process because when you're researching you know decently far back in history especially for subjects like an entire city you, you tend to get stuff that that isn't completely centered on the you know the pinpoint that you wanted to you, you find out a lot about sort of a window in time and so much of what that was when i was researching the first book was stuff that ended up uh being about sort of the later 1900s and 1910s 
um, stuff that I sort of wished I could incorporate um, into the first book, which, you know, things like um, the women's suffrage movement sort of picking up speed and the rise of industrialization. And you said like the, the period of, of World War One, where the U.S. was just sort of sitting on the fence and the rest of the world was, um, you know, getting into it. And, and, and we were just sort of hanging back and being neutral. And, and so it seemed to me that the characters that I created were pretty well positioned to like observe all, all of this. And so but it was just too late for the story. So I just sort of tossed it in a folder and said, I'll deal with you later. So that was my jumping off point for the Hidden Palace. It was like, you know, okay, I'm going to write the next book. Here's all the stuff I found. And let's like go down some rabbit holes. But as for how the process itself changed, I think what changed most was like the sheer amount of stuff that is available to research between, you know, what was the mid 2000s when I started writing. And now it was, you know, it was the problem wasn't finding the sources. It was like not drowning in the sources. It was, you know, I could, I felt like I could have researched this book for 10 years and still not known everything I needed to know um, because it's like every, you know, tiny corner of history has its own, you know, some, some professor is like an expert on this one thing and they've written 12 JSTOR articles and there's like three books I can get through interlibrary loan and I could spend all my time just researching all of that stuff if I wanted to. And I ended up researching stuff that like never made it into the book because, oh, you know, I, I cut a character or I lost a plot point. And, and then it was like, oh, well, that was a month's worth of research on silent films down the drain or, you know, one what was some of the other stuff was oh god like like police procedural stuff from the 1900s and it's like you know that's all in the folder you know that's all back in the folder now and you know i'm keeping it in reserve just in case but uh but yeah it was it's hard because research becomes procrastination and i you know i gotta write you gotta come out of it at some point and remember that you're writing about something that isn't like the thing you've been reading about for the last two weeks but uh but yeah it's just i'm i'm a i'm an information magpie so i just want to gather everything that i can i love that and yeah i'm sure all that research will come back at some point it's all it's not for <laughs> not so you, even excited. if it's just to bore people at cocktail parties once we have those again <laughs> Oh, that sounds lovely. I know. Please invite me. Um, <laughs> let's see here. <laughs> so I do want to talk about some of the new characters that you introduced that you mentioned at the top of the episode. So we have a Ginia Dima, which mm -hmm. uh, means a cloud that brings the rain, mm -hmm. which I love. And then we have Crindle, who's this brilliant but isolated ultra-Orthodox young girl. And then uh, we have Yasala, a golem that, uh, that Crindle's father created to protect her. So I'm just curious how challenging it was to introduce these new characters into this vast and intricate world that you've been working on for so long. It was really challenging. Um, it got a long, it took a long time to get their characters right. And part of that was the, because I had to, like you say, like sort of fit them into this intricate world and I had to make them follow the same rules that I had set up for, you know, everyone else in what, you know, the characters could and could not do. But they were also created sort of as foils for the main two characters for Hava and Ahmad, um, because they are the more traditional versions, if you will, of, of a golem and, and a genie that, that Yasal is very much like brutish built for strength he doesn't talk he's he's sort of the the image of of the you know the the golem of prague which was you know when you, you look at uh golem folklore that's the one that you know that's the big one the one that stands out 
and and Dima, the the genia, you know, she's she's been exiled, but she isn't physically limited in the same way that Ahmad is. She doesn't have to fit in with humans. She doesn't have to live under his constraints, and so she has a lot more freedom than he does to do whatever the heck she wants to. And so it was just difficult to to figure out how to take those and make them into rounded characters, especially Asala. He's he's like. You know, he's he's like a he's a a blank slate, you know, to some degree. He he can't interact the way other characters do with the with you know the main characters. So I, I had to figure out how to give him his own motivations and his own feelings. And and the way I did that eventually was was through Crindle, um, the girl who his ends up being his master. Um I had to spend a lot of time like developing the relationship between the two of them before I could think about like bringing him into Hava's orbit because otherwise there's no stakes there's no we don't have he's he's just sort of standing there like a non-entity like he has to have something to lose the way any character has something to lose and something to gain um in a story if, if you want to make it dynamic and and for uh dima i i sort of had to work the problem from a, a different angle because he, you know she has to set a lot of the plot in motion by coming to america that is in, and leaving the desert and it had to be by her own choice and so it, it it was like this 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 puzzle of instead of coming up with a character, turning them loose and seeing what they do, it was like, okay, I have to build a character who has a compelling reason to do something that is very dangerous um, and, and she's going to leave her own world behind and sail halfway around the world. And why would a character do that? And then make the character who would make that decision, make it believable and and like sort of work it in both directions so she she was the hardest Dima really was the hardest in this book I wrote many versions of her before I found one that felt correct in that she had she felt like she'd been built sort of organically and not like you know I carved a piece off here and I carved a piece off here so she would fit perfectly into a slot like she I wanted her to be well-rounded on her own so and that took a while yeah. And she never feels like a foil or anything like that. I think <laughs> you completely succeeded. And, and Yasala, dear listeners, you're in for something very special because I think Aww. the way you develop him and his growth is really just off the charts brilliant. So thank you for that character. I'll be thinking about him for a long time. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, so, and I think I, I tend to overuse words, but I can't overuse the word vivid here when describing <laughs> this book. So, and it's just a word I keep coming back to when I think about both the hidden palace and the golem and the genie. So, and for listeners, again, if you've read the books, you know, but it takes place geographically all over the place, but especially in New York, you have little Syria, the lower East side, the upper West side. And, but it's more than the streets and the sights and the sounds. It's the people and the communities, which we've talked about a little bit. They're just so well-written. So could you talk about capturing those people and the community and the cultures that they're bringing with them, the immigrant experience? There's so much there. What's it like Ugh. bringing them to the page? It's... It, it feels like it uh, it's it's hard in that I really want to do justice to the truth of it, to the truth of what it was like to live back then, you know, in, in the accounts that I research and that I read. But I think a lot of it is 
there's a tendency, I think, for especially starting out writing historical fiction. I know I did this the first like draft or two of, of my first book to to treat the pe people in the past as sort of fundamentally different than people today, that it, it, it sort of becomes a, a a pastiche like like these are people but they are somehow other than people now when the truth is that people really don't change all that much it's the circumstances that they live in that change it's it's the cultures that they live in that change and so it's like okay take a person and put them then and see and not like write a person from the past write just a person but this is where they live this is what they have access to this is what their culture is these are the problems they're facing and no those aren't the same ones exactly as today but you figure a person is a person so there's a certain amount of that that you have to sort of work through and, and sort of come to terms with but then writing writing the neighborhoods, writing, you know, with, with the first book with the Jewish Lower East Side. Um, and, and I know I've talked about this in other interviews with the first book, but it really is true that I, I, I started out assuming like this, this monolithic culture. And then I really had to get disabused of that notion that, you know, the Judaisms of New York were just as diverse back then as the Judaisms today. It wasn't, it wasn't all, um, you know, sort of this monolithic Orthodox Judaism. It wasn't, you know, all funny girl. It was, it was everything back then. And so once, you know, it's, it's just shedding a certain number of uh, preconceptions. For Little Syria, I wish I could have put more of Little Syria in this book. I I love just, I love reading about Little Syria. I love seeing, um, you know, more and more like research and, and scholarships coming out about it. I, I I originally had more set in Little Siri in the book, but I had bitten off way more plot than I could chew, um, and I ended up having to cut a character who was one of our windows in. So to so it, it sort of came down to um, Ahmad and his partner Arbili and Mariam, who is a uh, coffee shop owner whose coffee shop I really want to go to. By the way, um, I really want to um, get coffee there and and like read a paper and have Mariam solve all of my life problems for me. Um, She's a very fun character to write. And then, but really, I think the new, the new place for me to write about, um, besides, besides the Middle East, um, the new place for me in New York to write about this time was um, the orphanage that ends up being a an important setting in the book. And it's it's based on an actual orphanage um, that was like where. I situated this one. It was called the Hebrew Orphan Asylum, um, and it, it, it was from like the 1860s to I don't think it closed for good until like the mid 1940s. And it was like founded by these philanthropists in the Jewish, uh, the, the German Jewish community, and they took in a lot of Eastern European Jewish kids um, from the Lower East Side, um, and basically like you know gave them you know a place to live and an education and, and you know meals and medicine and and um, worked to assimilate them into American society. And they, that was a heck of a place I, I to read about. I read a number of, um, like one memoir and another history of what it was like to grow up there. And it was just this fraught, fraught place of like, you have like a couple thousand lonely kids under one roof and they're all crammed together and they all like, have the same, you know, many of the same experiences, but they all talk about how lonely they were. 
And so it, it, it sounded in some some ways like like a microcosm of, of like living in New York. And that way it's like you're in this community of millions and, and you walk down the street and everyone like this is like in their own little world. So so that was an interesting place to sort of figure out my own version of. And it's funny you talk about walking down the street, which is a great segue into my next ah. question. <laughs> um, brilliant, brilliant, Helene. Um, so there's this passage and it's, it, it's, it's about Haba. And, um, and I think it's anyone who's walked through New York City has experienced this. Uh, she enjoyed the feeling of walking with the crowd, of being merely one among many, a portion of something larger than herself beautifully put. Um, and this book does, you know, it takes place over a longer period of time than the previous book and world events include the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, the sinking of the Titanic, and World War One. And I thought this really brought to light the issues that both Haba and Akhmad are facing as their lives and their timelines are operating on a completely different scale than the world they're trying to inhabit and assimilate into. So how challenging was it to write and live with these characters with that type of scope? It's uh, it was pretty challenging, you know. I, I I didn't want it to turn into Forrest Gump, right? Like I didn't want it to be like they are there for everything, and and you know. But it, I didn't want the book to be just a litany of historical events. But you know, at the same time, these are pretty momentous years, and and there was a lot going on, and there was a lot going on in New York, and and there is, you know, to a certain extent, if you set a story in the Lower East Side in 1911, and you don't mention the Triangle Fire, it's like writing a book that's set in 2020 and the pandemic isn't in it. It was just, you know, just a part of the fabric of everyone's lives. Everyone was affected by it to some degree. But it, it but you're right in that it does also distance and alienate these two main characters from humanity and from the world around them, but that it doesn't touch them to the same degree that it does to everyone else. They have, like you say, they're, they're living their lives on a different timeline. They're living on a different scale, a different, you know, and, and Ahmad in particular in that the jinn live much longer than humans. And so to them, you know, things like World War One, you know, it, to them, hu- human war is just a constant state. You know, they, they live for, you know, 800 years or whatever. And, and so, you know, for them, they see people fighting each other and conquering each other. And then maybe there's a couple of years where they, there isn't any war and then it starts all over again. And so they just see this cycle going on and on. And that's Ahmad's ingrained perspective and that he's always seen humanity from that distance and that really does get reflected down into like his personal life in the book there's there's a um a passage where hava scolds him because he can't remember the names of his neighbors and what he says in his own defense is they come and go so quickly i meet someone and they're gone and that is like his perspective of you know in the same way that you know anyone living in an apartment building will one day walk down and be like wait but isn't that who they moved like there's someone new there and for him it's just like that multiplied on on like an, an enormous scale Hava is much more closely tied to the people around her than Ahmad is. So, so when that that distance between the um, herself and humanity like sort of asserts itself, suddenly it comes as like a shock and a crisis to her, because she very much finds comfort in in rhythm and routine. But the world changes around her, and suddenly she has to change too, if if she's going to stay hidden. 
And yeah, it, that was something that I felt like I had to deal with in this book because I can't just have these characters just keeping on, keeping on. You know, it, it, at one point, sort of halfway through the book, um, Hava basically switches careers, and and there's you know a number of reasons for them, and one of them was was to sort of grow the character, but but another was that I just couldn't imagine having someone working at the same bakery for you know 15, 20 years without anyone noticing that they don't age. Like that's just you know there is suspending disbelief, and then there is a bridge to far and that just to me felt like a bridge too far so so yeah that it just sort of informed a lot of of how I had to write excellent um and another fascinating thing about this book is the way it grapples with the very real issues faced by people at the time uh, in particular women and immigrants uh and there's this really powerful exchange between Anna and Ahmad which is she says let me tell you something Ahmad this is a cruel world for a boy like Toby, a good-hearted boy with no father and a mother who's never home with barely two nickels to rub together. A boy like that has to grow up learning certain truths. And one of them is that if someone shows you magic, it's a trick and you're the mark. And, you know, I think about belief and about faith and about imagination. And so much of that is wrapped up into this story and how important these, these things are for many of these characters. Um, and there's just one more short little section I want to read, and then if you don't mind sharing your thoughts. Yep. Um, so she says, you break all the rules and turn truth on its head. So now he starts to believe in the impossible. So what happens when he goes out into the world? So I'd love if you could talk about fantasy, its role in storytelling, your storytelling, and how we use it to deal with very real issues, you know, whether it's belonging, loneliness, loss, isolation. So, yeah, I, so I spent, this will come as no shock uh, to probably anyone. I spent a number of my formative years as a, like a weird and lonely kid. And like a lot of other weird and lonely kids, I escaped into like fantasy and sci-fi and TV shows. And I made up my own stories. Sometimes I was in them um, in, in my head and I wrote them down and my parents never discouraged it. They, they, I was lucky that way. They never told me like, you know, that's a waste of time or you're not facing reality or anything like that. Um, in fact, my dad was the one who got me into science fiction in the first place. So that was like always something that we shared. But I grew up in a, you know, relatively affluent suburban world um, where there, you know, a, a, a dreamy white girl was going to, you know, there, there are a number of protections, you know, that, you're, you know, you've, you've got some some cushion around you. But then there's Anna, who in the story is is a Bowery washerwoman, and she has been living hand to mouth for most of the book. Um, and she's had to harden herself to survive. And then she and 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 fears for her son because of it. And you know, she she's seen the impossible. She's a character from the first book and and she knows the truth of what is going on um with our two main characters. And her life has basically been ruined to a certain extent by them. So she sees to her son like chasing after these stories and all she can see is the danger and to a certain extent she's right because it is safer to be satisfied with the world around you and not to you know try to either escape or want or long for for something else um because that involves imagining and opening yourself up and making yourself more vulnerable and so she like drives this rift between herself and her own son um, because she re refuses even basically to acknowledge his questions about the various mysteries in, in his life. 
And I have a good deal of sympathy for Anna in this and that she really does want to protect him. And she would she would tear those questions out of him if she could, but she'd be tearing out a part of his soul along with them. And and that is what it ultimately comes down to between them. That's such a fascinating relationship. There are no small characters in this book. There are many <laughs> characters and they each bring so much narrative heft and just just real humanity to the book. So I'm excited for you all to read. Um, and one last question, Helene, and again, thank you so much for the thoughtful, incredible <laughs> answers to these. It's, it's really been a delight. Um, so my last question is about creating. And um, at a point in the story, Akhmad essentially cuts himself off from the world he, and he's working on this creation he's, essentially, he's obsessed with in the Amber's building. And he's talking about the structure he's poured himself into and he's isolated himself from everyone. And at, towards the end of the story, someone asks him, but what will you tell people when they see it? And he replies, I don't know. I never meant for it to be seen. And I feel like so much of the story is about being seen. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, it was at some point, I think I realized that this was going to be a huge um, theme in the book. And I ended up just sort of leaning into it. But I think to a certain extent, all that a lot of us really want, if not most or all of us, is, is to be seen and understood for who we are in all of our messiness and, and, and contradictions as people. But at the same time, life requires us to hide parts of ourselves all the time, which, you know, to a certain degree, that's for protection because we can't all walk around as exposed nerves, you know, day in and day out because that's exhausting. And, and we know people like that who are themselves exhausting sometimes. But that impulse, that, that longing to be seen and, and, and known, even if it's just by like one person in your life, is it's that to me is like what a huge part of love is you know love and intimacy and uh, that you know we all have for like the most important people in our lives um and that we all want for ourselves to some degree and 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 like with so many other things for my characters it's even more so from them and it becomes almost and it becomes literal to a certain degree because everyone in this book is hiding something from everyone else a lot of them literally and Ahmad is is Ahmad is probably the the best example of this because at, at a point in the book like as as you say he literally goes into hiding he he ostracizes himself he's he's lost the framework that kept him in his human life and he doesn't necessarily want it back again because he he's so unhappy and and because of that he can't imagine a world where he would be close enough to anyone to share himself in that way. And Hava does the same thing to a certain extent um, in a different manner in that she sort of withdraws into herself and she creates this veneer of, of form formality and, and protection and she becomes like sort of a cipher the, to, the, to the people around her. And you know, so that's how they at, at a certain point protect themselves and how they refuse to be seen. But but that's not what they truly want, I think. And so so that then needs to be resolved. But, you know, 
your question, you sent me these questions beforehand, and this this made me think about the process of writing and and writing as being seen. And, and I am lucky in that I, I get to write a book and I send it out and I have people read it, um, <laughs> which does feel like also uh, being an exposed nerve, uh, sort of, in that there is such a risk of rejection of, of people, you know, looking at this thing I've poured years and heart and soul into and being like, nah, it's not for me. It's subpar. I don't like it. So that's, that's always part of the risk. And I'm such a risk-averse person by nature that I wonder sometimes how I became a writer at all, because it, it is just nerve-wracking. But I think the stories just just drew me in too much, and then I had to share them. And you took the risk, and it's to all of our benefits. So, Helene, thank you for this interview. Thank you for the Hidden Palace. Thank you for the Golem and the Genie. It's such a special experience. I'm so excited for it to publish uh, June 8th. Librarians, if you're listening, there is an e-galley available on both Edelweiss and NetGalley. So get an early read, get excited, and let us know what you think. Helene, again, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a fascinating conversation. I've learned so much. I'm sure listeners have. It's been a real pleasure. So thank you. Well, thank you. This was, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.